church this morning? Amen. Now, it's a bit weary, it's a bit dreary outside. You might have stepped out of your car this morning and had a little bit of boggy, muddy shoes, but we're here, praise God. And I believe that we are here for a purpose this morning. There's no mistake that you are in God's house this morning. I believe that he has a word especially prepared for you. And as I was praying for the service this morning, it's a little bit off topic about what I'm speaking, but last night in particular and this morning, and it ties in with what Rachel had to say, I believe that God wants to impart hope. There might be someone here this morning in the situation that they're finding themselves in appears hopeless. They may have lost their joy, they may have lost their peace, but I want to read for you a scripture out of the book of Romans chapter 15 verse 13, and it says, May the God of hope... Our God is a God of hope. That is what separates us from others, is that we have hope this morning. Fill you with joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a supernatural working. Hope is a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit as he speaks into our circumstances, as he speaks into our lives. And if you came up for prayer this morning, or even if you were a bit hesitant to, but you know that the Holy Spirit was tapping at your heart, I believe that today something is going to change and that you are going to have a real sense of hope as you walk out of this building this morning. And so we are looking at the supremacy of Christ in the book of Colossians this morning. And we'll take a little bit of a journey, maybe a roundabout way to get there, but please stick with me as we go on this journey. Start by telling you a little bit of a story. Um, In the uh, Easter holidays, I had the opportunity to go out with some friends and we went on a, a bike hike, a bit of a bike expedition. And we went down the Brisbane Valley Rail Trail. It's a about 100 kilometres, we travelled it across two days. In the middle of the night, we, uh, we stayed at the Yarraman Caravan Park. And it's just beautiful countryside as you're driving along. You're passing um, uh, these farmlands and, and beautiful countryside of southeast Queensland. And as I mentioned, we stayed this night at the Yarraman Caravan Park. Everyone had the, anyone had the privilege of staying there before, Yarraman Caravan Park? Can recommend the accommodation. Um, We did have to fish out a couple of uh, toads out of the swimming pool, but once we managed to do that, it was fantastic. So can recommend. In any case, um, on the night we were at the accommodation, I found myself outside, and there's an image there of a photo I took of the sky. And it was just absolutely crystal clear. And what you find when you remove yourself from the big smoke from the city and find yourself out in the country is that there's not much light pollution. You can actually see the beautiful stars. And I don't know about you, but one thing that really draws me close to God is being out in nature and being able to see the absolute magnificence of creation. And once again, I was reminded that all of creation shouts His glory, shouts His name. And as I was staring at at this heavenly host, just spending time in reflection, a passage came to mind, which is our key passage for today, and it's in the book of Colossians. If you have your Bible with you, can you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1? We're going to look at verse 15 to 17. Should be there on the screen as well, excellent. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created through or by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Ever since that night, staring up at the heavenly host, reflecting on God's magnificence, the scripture has gripped my heart and mind. And yes, it's a, it's a magnificent passage. There's so much that we can take out of it, but I didn't know why it was that these words were sticking with me and I were mulling over it over and over again. A couple of weeks after, I discovered why the Lord had been placing this message on my heart. On Saturday, the 30th of April, Carolyn, my beloved mother-in-law, passed away from this world and went to be with the Lord. She had been battling over a year with cancer, and in that time, despite the fear, despite the pain and suffering that she went to, she never stopped worshipping God. Even amidst her pain, she was able to lift her hands and give God glory. There was a moment at the end of last year where the physicians told us that she wasn't responding to the treatment anymore, and they moved her from oncology into palliative care, and I have such a vivid memory, we got together with mum and we spent time praying, and God gave me, by his Holy Spirit, a vision for Carolyn, and, and she was standing in a field of flowers with a beautiful yellow dress, and she was just singing and spinning in the sunlight, something that she had not been able to do for years because she had a skin condition and, and multiple other health stuff going on as well. But I believe this morning she is in heavenly glory, that she is free from pain, that she is dancing, that she is spinning in the arms of her father, just enjoying his presence and his glory. But you know, reflecting upon the whole experience, I think there's nothing that actually can prepare us for the experience of losing someone we love. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, Just as it is for people destined to die once, and after that, the judgment. I think if you've ever experienced the loss of a loved one, you can relate to a poem that I found. This is by um, Lord Tennyson. And he um, writes a poem about his brother-in-law titled In Memoriam. A-H-H, and I want to read it for you this morning. Forgive me for my grief for one removed, thy creature whom I found so fair. I trust lives in thee and there, I find him worthier to be loved. Forgive these wild and wandering cries, confusions of wasted youth. Forgive them where they fail in truth, and in thy wisdom make me wise. One writes that other friends remain, that loss is common to the race, and common is the commonplace, and vacant chaff well meant for grain. That loss is common would not make my own less bitter, rather more too common. Never morning war to evening, but some heart did break. 
I think death is so confronting because partly of its finality. When we lose someone, they're gone. Partly because when we lose someone, we are left to grieve that sense of loss, those emotions that are attached. Partly because it reminds us of our our own frailty, of our own humanity, of the shortness of this life. And in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 14, it doesn't mince words. It reminds us rather unapologetically, what is your life? It's just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But, you know, I find it fascinating that even death, being such a real and physical experience, can also be a metaphor. And in the scriptures, we see the Apostle Paul, who will be investigating a little bit later, talk about that death can be a metaphor of our separation in our relationship with God. And in his book to the church at Emphasis, he writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. And then later on in Colossians, he reiterates saying, you were dead in your sins. And then in Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And so where am I going with all of this this morning? I think it's very important for us to understand the role that pain, that loss, that suffering plays in our redemption story. You might not be dealing with loss this moment. Your pain might take on a very different form. It could even be this morning that life is great for you. And if that is the case, fantastic. I praise God with you. But the truth of the matter is that life, being human, comes part and partial with having to deal with things going wrong, with suffering. It's a broken world that we find ourselves in. And we, as humans, are quite frail. But the amazing thing is when we look at that frailty in contrast to the beautiful redemption and glory that we have, the hope that we have for our future, it becomes all the more brighter. The good news of Jesus seems so much more powerful when we take it in light of that which we have been saved from. Before we can come to the realization that we need God, we need to realize what life looks like without God and we can see that in all the things that are happening around us at the moment. But it's the pain and the suffering which provides this beautiful contrast between the darkness of circumstance and sin and the glorious light and eternal hope that we have in Christ Jesus. I love the book of Job, and I've spoken about it before, but here we see a broken man, a man stripped back, laid bare. He is literally sitting on the ash heap of his life. Everything that he loves and holds dear, dead or destroyed, he is scraping the sores from his body with a broken piece of pottery. Could you imagine that image for a second? Here's a man who has been stripped back of his dignity and pride. There is nothing left of his pride or dignity. I had an experience, it was an honor recently to stand up at my mother-in-law's funeral and be able to give a eulogy or part of a eulogy of her life. 
And when I had planned writing this eulogy, I had planned to, me and Mel were both going up together. I was going to go up and support her. And, and Mel spoke first and she spoke beautifully and, and wonderfully about her mum. And I was there to support her. And she was fine. And then I got up and before I could even start speaking, I just became a blubbering mess. And, and the point is that grief sometimes has a way of doing that to us. It has a way of stripping us back and you can almost not fight against it. There's not much you can do. I planned to go up and be a support for Mel, but in the end, Mel had to support me as I fumbled my way through the eulogy. But you know, the interesting thing is that God meets Job in this point of desperation. And later when we look at Paul, that's where God meets him as well, at this lowest point where he had emptied himself of everything. That is where God came through and spoke to him. And we see in Job here, in verse 7, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 20, Job cries out, Have I sinned? What have I done? You see everything we do. Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? And that's sometimes the questions that we can ask. Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Or maybe sometimes we feel that life is not worth living. It's not worth going on. It's too much of a burden. We can't actually cope with the situation that we find ourselves in. I wonder how many of us have asked those questions. How many of us have asked, God, why do I deserve this situation? Why is there this brokenness in my family? Why is my child sick? Why have I lost my job? Why doesn't my spouse love me? God, why has this happened to me? These are heart-wrenching questions. Job 17.1 My spirit is broken, my days are cut short, the grave awaits me. Here is a man who is hopeless. He's lost all sense of hope and his pain is very, very real. But God, but God speaks in his moment of distress, God speaks to Job. And I want to tell you, Hope Point, that God is not absent in our distress. And if we look at verse 38, or chapter 38, rather, I love this chapter. The Lord speaks. Let me tell you this morning, Hope Point, when the Lord speaks, things change. When the Lord speaks over our lives, strongholds are broken. When the Lord speaks over our lives, captives are set free. When the Lord speaks over our lives, healing happens. When God spoke, he spoke us into being. He spoke the universe into being. It's through his voice. And the Lord spoke through the storm. And I believe that this could have been a a literal storm as Job gazed out sitting on his ash heap. But it could also have been his experience, the storm and the trouble that he found himself out. And this is what the Lord said. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marks off the dimensions? Surely you know who stretched out the measuring um, line across it. On what were the footings of the foundations set? While in the morning stars sang together and all angels shout for joy. 
Now, although initially we can look at this response from God and think, this is extremely callous. This man is pouring his heart out to God, and God is questioning Job all these questions. But I want to tell you this morning, God is responding in exactly the way that Job needed him to respond. And it's the same when God deals with us. And in my suffering, God spoke to me in a way that I needed to hear. He said to me, it's okay, son, for you not to understand. He says to me, you cannot comprehend the mysteries of the world. I see a bigger picture than what you see. But know this, I am in control. My grace is sufficient for you, and I rule supreme over every circumstance. Nothing catches God off God. Nothing surprises him. There's no question that we could pose to God that is too big. He has a different, higher perspective, and he sees the whole picture that we see in part. The Apostle Paul understood this dynamic. While he was imprisoned and suffering, he pens this letter in, uh, to the church at Colossae, and that's where we're looking at this morning in the book of Colossians. And if you go down with me here to verse 24 of chapter 1, this is what he says, Now I rejoice in that what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. Fascinating words. For the sake of his body, which is the church. Despite the situation Paul finds himself in here, and while he's writing this letter, he's sitting in house arrest. He's having all his freedoms taken from him, yet he is talking about his suffering to the church, and he understands that it's only temporal. It's only short-lived. He knows that there is a hope for redemption coming soon. And in the meanwhile... While he is stuck in this situation, he is determined to continue to worship and glorify God, despite what's going on around him. Now, if we go into verse 9 of the same chapter. For since this reason, oh sorry, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And we will pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power according to his gracious might, so that you may have great endurance, and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now, here is the thing. Once again, he is finding himself in this entrapped situation, a situation which he cannot escape from, yet he is telling the church that they will be strengthened, that they will receive endurance, that they will receive patience, and that they will be able to give God glory in thanksgiving, despite what he is finding himself in at the moment. I believe that if we can catch this revelation, if we can understand the message of Colossians, that God is supreme and in control, then we can stand in the face of the storm 
that we can have hope even in the most dire of circumstances. Let us continue then in Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him all things were created, whether thrones or powers, sorry, yeah, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. All things were created by him or through him, depending on your translation. This is a difficult concept for us to wrestle with, right? That the God of love and mercy actually created a disease called cancer. That the God who is all-powerful stand by as COVID ravaged the nations of the world and the whole situation, everything that goes with that. Is God standing by idly while Ukraine is under siege? There are people dying. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, writes a book called The Problem of Pain. And he answers these types of questions in a much more eloquent way than I ever could. But if I was to try and summarize his key thoughts, there's probably three thoughts that I take from that book. And the first one being that God has a different perspective, that he sees the whole picture where we see in part. The second thing, and at least to some extent, the, the problems we, we face in the world today, the, the, the brokenness is a consequence of sin, both in our own lives, and we know this through our broken relationships and the decisions that we sometimes make which can affect those relationships, but also the fact that we live in a, in a broken world. This is a consequence of sin. But lastly, suffering brings us closer to our Maker. It brings us closer to the arms of our Father. And look, I know none of this can actually alleviate the strong emotions that we feel, particularly in these difficult times in our lives. But if we come to the revelation that God is in control, that He knows what is going on, it can make those situations bearable. Jesus is in control this morning. He has the authority over every situation. Does Jesus have the power to heal cancer? Yes, he does. Did he choose to heal my mother, my good friend Mark, or my mother-in-law? No, he didn't. And I don't know why. Maybe one day when I get face-to-face in his presence, maybe I'll ask him. But the truth of the matter is I don't actually need to understand now. And when I get to heaven one day, maybe it won't even matter anymore. When I'm standing in his presence, when I'm dancing hand in hand in his arms, standing in glory, the pain from this world would be a distant memory. By very definition, Jesus is God. And in the truest sense of the word, he is the ultimate authority over all of creations. Turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. This scripture is about Jesus, or this passage is about Jesus. Who, being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee, every circumstance, every situation, every heartache, every pain will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, our Father, or the Father. Yes, hope point. All things have been created through and by him, but all things have been created for him. The sooner that we come to realize that our story is part of his story, that history is merely a reflection of what God is doing, the better it will go with us. When I can see my family, my finances, my occupation, and even my life is not my own but belonging to Him, it starts to change something. And we can see situations in a different light. Now, I know that this is very difficult for us to do. Being part of an economic, capitalist culture that we find ourselves in, this is a difficult concept to wrestle with. Let's grapple with this for a second. What would change in our marriages if we saw our spouse as the king, the king's son and the king's daughter? On loan for us for a little while, but we have to return them. And as I was thinking about this, the analogy that came to mind is the first date with a young man coming up to collect the girl take her out on a date, and her dad saying, make sure you get her back by 9 o'clock. Or if you're Mel's dad, get her back by 7 o'clock. But eventually, I will have to return Mel to her father. How does that change the way that I treat Mel? She is the daughter of the king. How has it changed the way that you treat your spouse? What about our kids? What if I saw my kids as his kids? Would it change the way that I speak to them? Would it change the things that I have to say to them, the way that I I, I want them to grow up and see life? Would it change? What about my finances? What if I saw my money as his money? If God's asking me to give a little bit more than I'm comfortable with, am I going to throw a tantrum? Or does that suddenly change that dynamic? Because it's his after all. What about my body? If I started viewing my body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, what am I going to allow to put into my body? What am I going to do to make the most of this body that God has given me to give Him glory? Imagine what God could do if we gave all of us to Him to use. Imagine the beautiful piece of pottery that the master potter can craft if the clay would simply stay on the turntable. Or the beautiful and strong and intricate piece of furniture that the carpenter can create if the the wood would just stop running away from the chisel. Imagine what God could do with us if we were to give him that which is rightfully his. Pastor Ben challenged us a month or so ago and he said, who is sitting on the throne of your heart? 
Jesus doesn't mince words with his disciples here in Luke chapter 9, verse 30, uh, 23. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What are the aspects of us that we need to crucify? What are the things that we need to give back to him? Because truly, Jesus is before all things and all things are for him. Let's continue now. Back to the book of Colossians. Sorry, we're doing a bit of jumping around this morning. Chapter 17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. Jesus' life and death is the single most important thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. God foreordained our redemption and Jesus hanging on the cross long before any of us were ever born. God's redemption precedes our distress, both in a collective sense but personally as well. Jesus stands at the center. His sacrifice stands at the center of our redemption. Are we sick and in need of healing? By Jesus' stripes we are healed. With his torn flesh, the death and resurrection, we can find redemption. But without those things there is no redemption. Jesus came to demonstrate perfect love. Are you struggling with anxiety, with fear, with mental health? Perfect love drives out fear. Are you poor? Are you struggling to make ends meet? Inflation is rising, the prices of houses are rising, the pressures on family are rising. Luke 9 says that Jesus, the Son of Man, had nowhere to lay his head. Yet, yet, Hebrews 2 verse 9, because of the cross, he was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus walked this earth. He went through grief and suffering. He experienced love and rejection. He had been poor, broken, tempted, and tried, but yet he is victorious, he was victorious, and this is the hope that we can have in Jesus, that we ourselves will be victorious, because he is victorious, he was victorious, and will be victorious forevermore, and that is our inheritance this morning, Hope Point, that we will be victorious, that is the hope that we carry. Now, my our session maybe the keys to come up, share a couple of final thoughts. In the latter part here, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the cornerstone of all creation. He is the thing that holds everything together. He is the centerpiece of the puzzle. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, Paul talks about Jesus as being the chief cornerstone. And you may have heard of this passage before, but maybe you've just sort of um, 
uh, flown past and not actually thought about the implications of what this statement actually means. See, the chief cornerstone, the cornerstone of the building is the most fundamental piece because once that cornerstone is laid, every other block, every other stone that is laid on that foundation is in relation to that cornerstone. So if you're putting the cornerstone that's slightly off-center or there's something wrong, it has a defect with it, your foundation is compromised. And the big thing with a compromised foundation is sometimes you're not aware of it. It's a blessing to see you here this morning, Mum. My mum's sitting up the back there, and I can remember when we were young, uh, moving to Australia, moved into this new Butte Smick house, and, and it didn't seem like there was anything wrong with it. But if you go there now, you'll see that uh, there's actually a bit of slump in the backyard, and there's uh, cracks in the wall. Those things didn't appear straight away. It took time for those things to appear. And likewise in our life, when our life is based on the wrong foundation, when we have a cornerstone of something that is other than Christ, over time when the storms of life come, it reveals those imperfections. My grandma, bless her soul, she's a beautiful lady. Every time I talk to her, she's like, oh, I can't quite hear you, Sanky, speak up, please. Very interesting conversations, or we have conversations about the same thing over and over again. But every time without fail, she'll tell me, with Christ in my vessel, I could smile at the storm. And I know that sounds very corny, but it had such, it held and it holds such truth. When my cornerstone, when my faith, when my hope is based on the King of Kings who is infallible, then I will hold strong in the midst of the storm. Then I will be able to face the trouble that life holds and still have hope. I'll be able to have joy and peace even in the midst of the darkest of moments. That is the promise that we have. That is the hope that we hold on to. If we can understand this key concept, that with Christ at the helm of my life, we can face difficult situations and it can be the difference between wallowing in self-pity, in brokenness, um, unable to move compared to being victorious. Two Corinthians twelve, verse nine and ten. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship in persecution, in difficulties, because when I am weak, I am strong. For in Him, all things were created. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him, All things hold together.
Let's pray. God, this morning we come before you as your children. And we are asking, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that you would impart a fresh sense of hope into our situations. God, this morning we can look at a world around us that seems hopeless. A world around us where things are not the way that they should be. God, there is brokenness and death all around our doorstep. But we thank you, God, that this morning you have given us the authority. God, that you have promised us that by your Holy Spirit, you will impart a sense of hope into our hearts if we put our trust in you. God, this morning we declare that you are who you said you are. God, all things, all things, all things belong to you, God. Every circumstance we lay before your feet. God, every gift and ability, our families, our finances, God, we lay it before your feet because it belongs to you. God, in this morning we claim, we proclaim and we claim the fact that everything holds together in you. God, that you are with us and you are for us. Thank you, God. Thank you, God.